This is an ABC podcast. G'day, my name's Clint Jasper. Welcome to Country Breakfast. This morning we're taking a 1,700 kilometre journey through the proposed inland rail route. We'll hear about the promises of the project and why some people have some pretty grave concerns about how it's rolling out. It certainly appeared like you know, two guys with a Commodore listening to KC and the Sunshine Band, you know, roaring up the road beside the railway going, yeah, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, let's move on. I think most of it was done desktop. Perfectly honest, I think they just looked on Google Maps and went, no problems here, keep going. First up today, Kath Sullivan is here to run through this week's rural news. Good morning, Kath. How are you, Clint? Not bad. Let's start with markets. The wheat price shot up last weekend when the scale of the problems facing the drought-ravaged US crop became obvious. Oh, it's hard to believe at the moment, isn't it, given mm. that so many of us have copped another deluge of rain this week. But much of Europe and North America is suffering through a really nasty drought at the moment. A staggering 70% of the United States has been drought declared and the production of corn over there has suffered really badly. Now, corn and wheat prices are really closely linked. And the most recent estimate of production that came out just this week was actually worse than what anyone was expecting. So price have started lifting. Industry analyst Andrew Whitelaw, who's based here in Australia, says the Russia-Ukraine conflict is also adding upward pressure to the prices. Putin has obviously done his mobilisation or his conscript and uh, basically pulling in a lot of people who have done military service. And that includes a lot of people who are you know, truck drivers, tractor drivers. And basically what we're starting to see is issues now where you know, moving the crop is becoming more difficult. Harvesting crop is still needing to be harvested harder. But also even planting the crop for next year is a challenge because of staff. A few months ago, we covered the mega drought in the west of the US on Country Breakfast, and it definitely sounded like a pretty desperate situation and one that we ourselves were in not too long ago before we were underwater. And, Kath, on that note, it certainly has been wet here on Australia's east coast, but on the other side of the globe, the impact of floods in mm. Pakistan in September is still being realised. This is horrific, Clint. About mm. 1,400 people were killed in Pakistan's floods uh, just earlier last Last month. More than a million livestock and one and a half million hectares of crop were destroyed by the flooding. Adrian Prowse is the head of international programs with the Australian Red Cross and he's really concerned that this is going to lead to more hunger spreading. While there's the humanitarian need right now, what we're really talking about is an ongoing situation. I mean, we're talking probably another couple of million people in Pakistan moving into food insecurity between November and March this year. On Thursday morning, Australia Time, the New York Times podcast, The Daily covered the aftermath of the floods in Pakistan and they kind of explained that many of the farmers plant two crops a year. Cotton is the cash crop and they use that money to plant wheat for food and they've lost their cotton crops and now the ground is too wet for wheat. So that's an extremely concerning situation for food security. Incredibly sad, isn't it? Absolutely. The pictures are really horrific. But on a lighter note, Kath... 
it's that time of year. Happy harvest time. <laughs> Thank goodness, some better news. There's canola coming off in parts of Western Australia already and harvest contractors are preparing to make a start on the harvest trail, getting their machinery in place in the south of Queensland. Now, we're expecting a bit of a long harvest with potentially substantial weather-related disruptions. Just think about the last couple of days. Mm. One of the contractors that's heading north is Lee Burke. He comes from Donald in Victoria's Wimmera. He's made so many trips north to get his machines in place. He's certainly in a good spot to give a, a crop tour. Yeah, the crops are looking pretty good. Up through oh, a fair bit of um, central New South Wales, there's a fair bit of crop missing just that uh, they couldn't get in because it got too wet. Some other areas have been probably flooded in some low-lying areas. So there is quite a bit that hasn't gone in, I'd say, the... Um, Hectares would be down through New South Wales from last year, I would have thought. Kath, you and I love a bit of good basin news, and this story is a bit in the eye of beholder, so I won't speak for you, but I was delighted early this week to see Dartmouth Dam spilling. It was pretty remarkable imagery, wasn't it? Um, mm. Great pictures, and you might have actually seen this if you're listening at home. You might have seen the videos on social media. Victoria's largest dam has spilled for the first time since 1996. Wow. You're quick with your maths, Clint. Four million megalitres <laughs> is how many Sydney harbours? Don't put me on the spot like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's roughly eight Sydney harbours worth of water that's normally held at capacity in Dartmouth Dam. And the staircase spillway has turned into a bit of a tourist attraction in the northeast of Victoria this week. It's a cascade of awe and wonder, at least that's how someone described it, as the dam spills for the fifth time since it was constructed in the 1970s. Although I must say, as you pointed out, it does bring a bit of trepidation for those downstream. Peter Lipkins has been the weirkeeper for 45 years. That's a pain in the ass. Can you explain why? <laughs> Operationally. Well, when it does go over, it's uncontrolled. The downstream landholders will be affected. Uh, restricted generation capacity of AGL. There'll be uh, extra maintenance after the event uh, on the spillway. So it's not, not an ideal position to be in. The one positive, I suppose, is that the, um, the next drought that we can have, we can't have had any more water to start with in the, you know, in the future. But uh, when you think of it, this storage is the storage of last resort, and we are here for drought. That's what I'm trying to keep focused on when I see a full Dartmouth Dam. Preparing for drought? Always. The memory never leaves me. <laughs> <laughs> Kath, one of the major supermarkets has ramped up a campaign it says will help customers deal with inflation. Yeah, look, I think this is really worth mentioning. I know we wouldn't normally be um, making our way through the supermarket catalogues, but <laughs> one of the major retailers has made some pretty hectic price cuts this week, like a 40% uh, drop on the price of chicken tenders and a 16% price cut for scotch fillet. That's just a couple that stood out to me. In response, Victorian butcher Joel Young said he thought this was just another crack at the little guys, the independent retailers. But he too is seeing the impact of the rising inflation and, and cost of living prices. And uh, this is what he's been observing in his Latrobe Valley butcher shop. We're, we're definitely starting to see a lot more like your, your choice cuts, such as you know lamb and premium steaks and everything like that start to... Um, are on the decline. However, people are starting to cook a lot more savvier. Um, people are starting to shop a little bit more smarter. So instead of your your weekly shops, we're starting to see a lot more of our regulars through the door maybe two to three times a week as opposed to once a week in that big shop. 
So, Kath, if the supermarkets do want to help customers with the cost of living, what does that actually mean mm. for the farmers who supply the chain? Well, just like the Dartmouth Dam spilling, <laughs> two sides to every story, Clint. This same retailer that we've been talking about um, earlier this year, just in August, cut the price of 1,100 other supermarket items. And that's really put a squeeze on at the other end of the supply chain. Annabelle Johnson is from the New South Wales Farmers Association, and she says there needs to be better regulation to help farmers deal with major processes. What we're concerned about is making sure that enough value flows back to the the farm gate so that our farmers can run profitable and productive businesses because it is a heavily consolidated sector and we do have concerns with the, the competition in that and the contracts that our, our farmers are on and you know we believe that it's an industry that does need to be looked at and we, we're very passionate about calling for a mandatory um, code of conduct similar to the dairy industry. Let's get to some politics now. The leader of the National Party has hit out at the federal government for not implementing recommendations from an independent review of the live export trade. Mm, Certainly fired up about somebody not doing something. (laughs) In the Department of Agriculture's review of live sheep exports during the Northern Hemisphere summer... The regulator recommended that a moratorium on exports to Oman and destinations in the Red Sea be reduced. Now, the report said heat stress risks were less than previously understood. But David Littleproud, who's the Nationals leader, is wondering why the department is not implementing those recommendations. Uh, This is something that should be taken away from politics and the decisions of the minister should be predicated on science. All mine decisions while minister were predicated on the science of the industry determined by scientists about what were the best conditions to send sheep to the WA. Now, they've led an ideological view of banning live sheep to get in the road of the science that the independent regulators come back and said that the window can be shortened for certain ports in the Middle East And it's important that this government adheres to that rather than listening to activists who are giving the advice. We know very well the scammers are getting smarter and smarter. They're swindling billions out of us with texts and phishing emails, but they've turned their eye to the cattle industry now. You don't know something I don't know, do you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's right, Clint. Look, are you familiar with the Scottish Highland cattle? Do you know which ones I'm talking about? I do. Um, I died in the wool belty supporter, but I'm aware <laughs> of the other cute cow. They're very cute. They've got lovable looks, a very gentle nature, and they're now on top of the wish list for many hobby farmers. But as demand for Scottish Highland cattle rises, well, so too does the risk. This is astonishing. A pair of Highland cattle were topping at $15,000 this week with scammers preying on prospective buyers and police warning people to be careful. Central Queensland grazier Cindy Kirby says she waded through hundreds of scam ads to find a genuine breeder. I would have spoken to a scammer a day at least, I reckon. Um, There's a few going around that, you know, that supply and demand. If you've got a high demand, then it's probably easier for those scammers to slip in, I guess, and just blend with the crowd. The saying is, it's hard to find as hen's teeth. Like, you just can't find them. So you're willing to put that deposit down because you think someone else will take them because there is such that high demand. There's quite a few people around who have unfortunately born to pick them up or, you know, waiting for the truck to arrive and just nothing ever comes and it's um, and it's a shame. 
One to watch out for if you're in the market for some Highland cows. Or perhaps time to think about breeding some, Clint. Last week it was greenhouses we were hatching and and this week it's Highland cows. (laughs) One day we'll find something that actually makes us some money. Who said we're fickle? Thanks. (laughs) That's another week of news. Thanks, Kath. A new season of Short and Curly is ready to fire up your family dinner table conversations. Or keep everyone happy on long car trips. Should we kill insects that annoy us? Is it okay to yell at robot voice assistants? Or to want what someone else has? Just some of the questions on your favourite family podcast, Short and Curly. Find it now on the ABC Listen app. This week, we're gathering around the campfire and joining camp oven cooking enthusiasts who are preparing a feast over hot coals. They're taking part in a camp oven cooking competition as the pastime enjoys a resurgence. We'll meet two young brothers who've started a juicy little business that's benefiting their country community and will tee off on the world's longest golf course that's also possibly the roughest. The unusual golf course along the Nullarbor Plain has unique hazards like wombat holes and crows that steal golf balls, and there's not a manicured green link in sight. If you're expecting to play St Andrews, don't come. It's Australia's outback. It's 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 got all the bits and pieces that belong to Australia. There's the emus and the kangaroos and the snakes and and all the stuff that's Australian is here. This is what you come for, and this is what the international tourists come for. The Outback Golf Course that's drawing tourists for a very Australian game that is coming up. First today, we're headed to far north Queensland and a tiny town that's barely a dot on the map. A chance stop-off in this one pub town led a father and daughter to a graveyard mystery that sparked a historical quest and reunited a family. We're here in Almaden because a couple of years ago my dad and I had a little adventure on a Savannah Lander train. We stayed the night in Almaden and we were looking for something to do, so we came here to the uh, dead heart of town. Almaden is a tiny town in far north Queensland, about 170 kilometres southwest of Cairns. It has a pub, a caravan park, a train station, and a historic cemetery. Two years ago, after stopping here on their train journey, Marion Laurie and her father Don have returned. Their initial visit to the local cemetery set them on a quest to honour the memory of a young woman who was buried there more than a century ago. We saw a gravestone, a headstone that said something to the effect of this, this young woman who died over 100 years ago at the age of 25 would never be forgotten as long as her grave marked the spot by that white blossom tree. So we looked at each other and went, where's, where's the tree? And there wasn't a white blossom tree and we felt like she'd been forgotten and we wanted her to be remembered. And for all of those people uh, who've passed in some strange way, in a strange place, which she was among strangers, cared for here, died here, uh, and the town turned out to her her funeral without it really even knowing her. Hello, I'm Phil Brandell. I've come here to Almaden where Marion and her dad are ensuring that that young woman, Nellie Ryan, is remembered. Marion says she and her dad 
started digging into Nellie's story after seeing the headstone. So Dad did some research with the uh, Historical Society and discovered that she was a domestic. She lived in Georgetown, though she came from Toowoomba. She'd been to hospital in Townsville with some kind of lung condition. And uh, she was on her way back, back home to Georgetown when she took ill. Uh, the train didn't run here then. I think she must have been in some kind of coach. We're not really sure. Uh, but she got off here and... Uh, sheltered at the pub where the the proprietor at the time cared for her. Uh, unfortunately, she died and and was buried here. What happened after that? What happened at her funeral? So the, the town gathered around. Uh, they cared for her in her last days and they, they cared for her at her funeral, even though they didn't know her. Tell me about the little note that's inscribed on her gravestone. It says something like, uh, from us you have flown Never forgotten you will be as long as your grave marks the spot by that white-blossomed tree. And you discovered there were no white-blossomed trees, so you did a little bit more research. And what did you discover then? Well, our research at this stage involved getting back on the Savannah Lander, going to Mount Surprise, walking down the main street and going, wow, look at that beautiful white-blossomed tree. What is it? What is the white-blossomed tree? It's a native bohinia. It's a Lysophyllum hookeri. Beautiful white blossoms. They're like orchids and they have a sort of red uh, stamen. We're here today to, to plant some of those trees in her memory. And a lot of people would be saying, oh, you must be a distant relative. You're not at all, are you? No, not at all. Uh, and it's something that, you know, we've, you kind of travel around maybe your backyard, maybe the world, and you, you connect with people that you may have nothing to do with, but it doesn't mean you don't care. And we're planting five trees today. Where are they being planted and why? So we have one here at the cemetery. We have one at Tamarin Gardens Van Park. The one at the Van Park uh, is because they're kind of bringing it back to life as well. with lots of beautiful native plantings there, so it kind of fits. Uh, one at the railway station because the Savannah Land is such a keen part of uh, the story. And one at the pub. So even though it's not the same hotel as the one where Nellie died, it's the local hotel. And what are you hoping to achieve by planting these trees? Because I know there's a little bit of a, a plaque that goes with them. It's just in memory of Nellie. And I suppose you could say Nellie is the figurehead of being in memory of people who care for other people, outback hospitality. It's that, that spirit of community. Marion's dad, Don Laurie, helped identify the white blossom tree referenced on Nellie Ryan's grave that was missing from Alma Den. I belong to the Society for Growing Australian Plants and we have records of all sorts of things like that. But we recognised this one in the main street, collected some seeds, propagated them and we, here we are. We've got five trees, to, five trees to plant and eight little tiny ones to give to any relatives. Once they've um, grown, what are they going to look like? Yes, at this time of year, yeah. we should be able to see them somewhere if you look around. Uh, that they have distinctive red leaves in the, in the winter time and then they put the big white flowers out with red stamens. They're quite distinctive. Uh, I, I've been told by the locals that they, uh, the graziers thought that they suppressed grass, so they cut them all out. Del Childs is a local historian who also happens to be a distant relative of Nellie Ryan. Well, I have been a family history tragic, I call myself, for many years, and uh, I knew that I had Ryan relatives. I knew that there was a Ryan headstone here, but I didn't know all of the story until I heard about Don and his trip out here, and, uh, and so it went from there, and it was only when I saw on social media that they were looking for Ryan relatives that I put my hand up and got in touch. Nellie is the sister of my great 
great-grandmother. Yes, my great-grandmother was Margaret Christina Ryan and Nellie was her younger sister. And what do you know about Nellie? Um, I found out quite a bit, actually, um, that she was born on the Darling Downs and she and her family came up here over many months, I would think, and uh, they started off in Normanton. Then uh, I think she was in Georgetown at the time she fell ill. Um, she actually lost her mother um, to childbirth uh, when... Nellie was 10, so I imagine she would have had to have looked after her brothers and sisters. It's, uh, it's been a wonderful journey of learning just about Nellie's life and today meeting some of my Ryan relatives. Even though she didn't have children and she, she wasn't married and didn't have children, but she had five brothers and sisters and I think there's a few hundred descendants all up. And how does it feel um, about the, the whole tree planting exercise in memory of your distant relative? Look, I just think it's a wonderful gesture. You know, we've got so many bad stories and, uh, and difficult situations in the world at the moment. And this is such a wonderful story. And uh, I just give full credit to Don and his family for following it through. So my name's Therese and we're Team TNT. This is my hubby Troy. <laughs> Today we're cooking pumpkin soup. We've got porcupines with seasonal greens that I've grown from my garden. So lots of home produce for us. Even pumpkins are ours. Therese Palmer and her husband Troy are taking part in a cooking competition with a bit of a difference. They're preparing all of this food in big cast iron pots, known as camp ovens, placed on top of hot coals. We've got some bread in the oven that is almost cooked, if you want to have a look at that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, that's our bread. Oh, wow. Yes, this is a garlic bread that's going with the meatballs. It's pretty cooked. So how hard is it to, to cook bread in a camp oven? It's not really hard as such. So these ones over here is where I rose. These ones here just warming from a the summer sun. Yeah. I've yeah just proofed them in there and then I've transferred it over into the um, the hot camp oven to cook them which they only took about 20 minutes to cook. From our other camp oven we've got the pumpkin soup started if you want to have a yes. squizzy at the soup. So that's our soup starting. So we've roasted the pumpkins and now we've just added the onions and garlic to simmer down. Then we'll add some uh, magic ingredients later on. <laughs> Hello, I'm Inga Stunzner. I'm here in the tiny central Queensland town of Comet, a three-hour drive west of Rockhampton, where a camp oven cooking competition is being held. Traditional camp oven cooking is undergoing a resurgence in popularity, but Therese and Troy have been enjoying camp oven food for decades. Uh, we've been cooking camp ovens for a good 20 years. What's um, attracted you to it? I think it's just the morale. We all love food. <laughs> you can cook it at home, you can cook it in a camp oven pretty much. And is this yep. the first time that you've entered a competition? This is our third competition. So we entered a competition up in Charters Towers. Didn't do so good, but that was our first ever team sort of event, you know, <laughs> working with my husband. I think I stressed out more. <laughs> and then we went down to Milmarin last year with friends of ours and we came second place. So 
it was pretty exciting. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so we've actually entered in this year's Milmaran um, competition. It's all about Christmas, so it's a bit of a challenge. Right, oh, it looks amazing. And so you've got three camp or four camp ovens and another two. Is that the, the skill, like, well, half of it is getting the right camp oven? Or? Not necessarily. We've got a cheaper sort of camp oven here to, you know, relics that are, you know, older than my grandparents. But we've also got these ones here, which are Baduri camp ovens. They're a spun steel. They're a lot quicker at cooking. So we cook more of our breads and desserts in these because they, they cook quicker and you can take the heat out of it quicker. Whereas a cast oven holds their heat for longer. The Australian Camp Oven Festival has been running since 1999 at Mill just over 200 kilometres west of Brisbane. Katrina Grunden has been involved since the beginning, first as a competitor and now as an event coordinator. She says camp oven cooking is luring people from all backgrounds and last year the festival attracted more than 10,000 people. I think it really comes down to the simplicity of it. The fact that you can cook while sitting around talking with mates, especially these days, just we're always so busy and, you know, you put something in a camp oven and you can't hurry it. You, well, if you do, you end up ruining it. And so you just have to settle down and, and let it take its time and that's a good thing. Katrina says people are also becoming more creative because our food knowledge has changed. What was just a beef stew now, you know, you might turn into a, a ragu. And probably food is more plentiful now too. Once upon a time when you were travelling with a camp oven, you only took flour and you had water so you could make a really basic damper. But now we like to throw in all sorts of things. Adding to this popularity is the fact you can do it in your backyard. You know, you can cook a, a camp oven on a fire pit. You can use heat beads. So, you know, you don't need to have a wood fire even. If you're, a, you know, a beginner cook in an urban area, you think, I'm just going to give this a shot. What, what's a, a good recipe to start with? A lot of people always go for a damper. It is a simple recipe, but it's the cooking of a damper is a bit more technical because you have your oven too hot, too cold, it can be burnt and not cooked through and that sort of thing. I actually think a, a stew is a really good starting point because you can sort of put it in and forget about it almost for a few hours and you get a really good result from it. That was Katrina Grunden of the Australian Camp Oven Festival. She was speaking to reporter Inga Stunzner. Before that, Phil Brandell took us to Almaden in far north Queensland, where Nellie Ryan is being remembered more than 100 years after she died at the age of just 25. You can see more on those stories on the RN homepage. Just look for Country Breakfast under the Programs tab. My name's Clint Jasper, and still to come, the young brothers that are bottling juice to turn fallen oranges into a community fundraiser. And the game of golf, that's about much more than hitting a ball with a stick. If you're expecting to play St Andrews, don't come. It's Australia's outback. It's, it's, it's got all the bits and pieces that belong to Australia. There's the emus and the kangaroos and the snakes and, and all the stuff that's Australian, is here. 
This is what you come for. And this is what the international tourists come for. And we've had a lot of people playing Chasing the Sun from all over the world come here just to play the tournament, just to experience that Australiana. So it's an absolutely brilliant um, Australian golfing attraction. The golfing attraction that Alf Caputo is describing is far from your typical manicured greens. Alf is the manager of the Nullarbor Golf Links, the world's longest course that snakes along Australia's Nullarbor Plains. The idea for this unusual course was cooked up about 20 years ago as a way to encourage tourists to slow down as they travelled the flat Nullarbor Road along the Great Australian Bight between remote parts of South Australia and southern Western Australia. Nullarbor Links started in about 2000. 2002 began um, over dinner with a fellow called Bob Bongiorno at the Belladoni Roadhouse. After a couple of bottles of wine, he told me about building this course and slowing people down uh, for a number of reasons. One of the reasons was, of course, to uh, economic value to the roadhouses. The other was also a safety aspect of slowing down and less accident, which, is, which has happened. Right around the world there's been reaction to this golf course, immense reaction. Our website gets 2,700 visits a week from all over the world. Amazing, the amount of response that our website gets. And is it the longest golf course in the world? Without a doubt. 1,365 kilometres, and every bit of it is a brilliant drive. Hello, I'm Jodie Hamilton, and I'm catching up with some of the competitors taking part in the annual Chasing the Sun Nullarbor Golf Links Tournament, which celebrates the uniqueness of the course, where hazards include crows, kangaroos, and wombat holes. Mark Donkin and husband Eric were course caretakers for the first 11 years, and they haven't missed a tournament. Well, the good shot went down here, but then it hit a rock and went left. Way up in the air and went left. I don't think we were expecting it to be quite as intimidating, quite as primitive as it was. Um, as it's progressed more, we've cribbed a bit every time you come out to do the maintenance. You crib a bit more and crib a bit more. So now it's nearly like Royal Melbourne now. <laughs> no. If you're a golfer and you go out there expecting to get a score, forget about it. If you're a non-golfer, they have a lot of fun. The rough is very rough. You don't want to go in the rough because the rough is like knee high, grass and bushes and shrubs. Go to like Nundru has got lots of rocks. So the ball comes down and you think, oh yeah, that's a good shot. And then it hits a rock and it goes off and no, it's not a good shot. Nullarbor's got lots of wombat holes on the course and in the rough, so usually if you go in the rough at Nullarbor you just hit another ball, you don't even go look for it. <laughs> and the crow is at Nullarbor usually, but we were lucky yesterday we didn't see him, but the people before us had a crow. The crows have a reputation for stealing balls. It was on the green and great shot! Now came the crow and took the ball. He must have a thousand balls, he must have a stack I reckon in a hollow tree this time, or down a wombat hole. Playing the Nullarbor Golf Links is a bucket list item for a lot of travellers. Over 20,000 have played the course. That is, of course, the people that we know that actually pay. 
Now, there's a lot more people there. Um, our two shop fronts, which are the Sejuna Visitor Centre and the Kalgoorlie Visitor Centre, and Norseman, of course, they tell us that there's so many more people that play it but don't pay. So they don't purchase a scorecard. They just play three or four holes and happy with that. And that's fine. The golf course has made the Nullarbor a destination. People actually come here to play the course. Whereas before, people would jump on the air highway in Sejuna and get off at Norseman and wouldn't stop. This has been absolutely brilliant for the Nullarbor. <laughs> it's about the fun. It's about the wine tasting and it's about digging for a gold nugget and it's about having a little sing-along in the evenings with a few wines. Yeah, no, the golf's definitely secondary. <laughs> as long as you don't want to score good, this is a great competition. But, I mean, I've won it four times, but I bet I never got under 100 in any of them. Don't expect to score. <laughs> and bring a couple of balls and look don't look for your ball just drop another one because it's a fun thing it's all about stopping hopping out having a stretch going for a walk okay hit a couple of balls but yeah it really is not about the golf it's about stopping and yeah not driving tired and stuff like that i'm doing all right i'm having a great time Excellent. the golf's not good but i didn't come for the golf i'm too old to come for the golf I'm past that. How old are you? 79. <laughs> it's not, yeah, it's not bad, the golf. When his family moved to a new home on a rural property in central west New South Wales, it sparked an idea for a business venture for 12-year-old Jack Fitzgerald. We were driving back from home from parks and, and like, there was, like, I saw a heap of oranges on the ground and I was like, we could make orange juice out of that. Hello, I'm Hamish Cole. I'm visiting the Fitzgerald family on their orchard farm near the small country town of Condoblin. The 700 orange trees on this property had not been given much love by the previous owner, but the family have been tending to the trees and getting them back in shape, as Jack's nine-year-old brother Joe and his mum Elaine explain. I didn't prune some trees with Dad most of the time, me and Dad been pruning the orange trees to help them. So they grow and they grow nice big big oranges. It's been good for people to say that I've did a I've did a good job with my orange juice and and I'm only I'm only little. Lots of people say, oh that's more and more work but it's happy, like it's nice, it's peaceful, it's relaxing. Then have all the dogs out and it's just nice. When they first arrived at the orchard, the Fitzgeralds had no plans to restore the farm after it had been left run down. But the boy's dad, Ben, says that soon changed. A big learning experience. I mean, I'm a baker and Elaine's a, a nurse, so we didn't really know much about oranges coming in here. So we just sort of reached out to some help. And, from down in Griffith there with elders and they sent up an agronomist for us and gave us a been stepping us through step by step helping us get the orchard up to speed it was pretty badly run down and needed a lot of love but we're just getting there one day at a time we just thought we were going to do what the previous owners did and just put them in a bag out the front or take them down to a market and get rid of them but 
Jack sort of swung by the idea around the juice and the more we looked into it, the more we thought, oh, it could be a, a good addition to the shop. So off we went and we brought a juicer and put some oranges through it and put it in a bottle and it sort of took off and the kids been sort of driving it. They now have big plans for their Jack and Joe's orange juice. Like move it to the city and out to like small country towns like Condo and Forbes and Park. Spread it all over Australia so people, so people know. The boys are also doing their bit for the Condoblin community with the money they make, donating it all to local sporting clubs. So with my bits of money I get, I always sponsor my teams, like cricket team and um, footy. footy. We'll have to sponsor them because if we don't sponsor them, well, they won't be here anymore. The orange juice has been a big hit in the local community. The idea is to be able to just have something that's niche for Condoblin and mm -hmm. just another thing to for a small country town like this. It, it, all them little bits and pieces add up to making a good experience for people mm. that come into town and whether they go away and go, oh, geez, the supermarket was nice there or, geez, the bakery was nice. Or, oh, that bottle of juice, it was a cracker, you know. They're the things that bring people back into our communities out here mm. and if you don't try and put forward them sort of things, I guess there's, there's no reason for anyone to come out here and visit us. You know, our, our country regions have a lot to offer but it's only as much as what the local residents are willing to input themselves. Ben Fitzgerald and his family spoke to reporter Hamish Cole about how his son Jack's idea to make orange juice with fruit from their farm orchard took off. You can see more on that story and all of the stories on today's program. Find us on the ABCRN homepage. You'll see Country Breakfast under Programs. Two Saudi sisters die alone in their apartment. What happened to them when they got here and why they died alone, nobody's saying. Street gangs wage war over postcodes. And that's how I ended up agreeing to be blindfolded, driven for 40 minutes till I've got no idea where. Climate warriors face off against police. Happy to get locked up for this one? Yes. Why? It needs to be done. Background briefing, journalism without the spin. Sunday morning at 8 on RN or anytime via the ABC Listen app. Many First Nations people have grown up eating a range of native fruits produced on their country, but not many of those fruits make their way onto supermarket shelves. Now, one group of women in far north Queensland have a plan to cultivate them and turn them into products, as Tanya Murphy reports. Hi, my name is Judith Bowen. I'm from Hopewell. I'm a DARPA lady, and we've got three others from Hopewell here. We travelled up to Malanda on a farm. They showed us these... Um, plants, most of the plants that we got at home too. We've got Davison plum, wild raspberry, lily pilly. And now we're making something out of those three, making a jam. So we've got a lot of those plants around and we didn't know how valuable they were, like what we could do with it. Now we're kicking around everything that we can do with everything we have planted up there now. Um, sauce, chili sauce, all kinds of sauce now we can. This gave us a bit of an idea of what we could do. Hi, my name's Darrell Lyons. I'm a Marawali man from my grandmother's country in southwest Queensland. We're here at the Food Incubator on a three-day program, which is basically being funded by Empower Foundation, which is a not-for-profit, totally aimed at increasing participation of Indigenous people in the native food industry in Australia. 
So this is off the back of a report that was done a, a few years ago and it showed there was only 0.2 of a percent of Indigenous women who are involved in the native food industry. And from aunties and all the women involved, in reality, they're the ones who have a lot of knowledge around native food. So we felt it was a really poor statistic. So we've set up this foundation and acquired funding to run programs to actually show um, activities and give entry points to bring a whole heap of women together and girls. Um, we set up five hubs around the country. Um, we have a hub here in Cairns, which is for tropical North Queensland. So we've invited ladies from Hopevale, Yarrabah and Napernum, uh, and we've taken them up to a native food plantation and farm on the Atherton Tablelands yesterday to show how they can actually do production and, and, and ways to get into that. Then uh, we brought some native food product down from the Tablelands and we've got two days in the food incubator and we're actually showing them and they're making uh, their own jams and chutneys and we're showing them how to brand it and create their own product. So it's really activity-based and really breaking down the steps to show how it is achievable to get into get into the industry. After this program, what would be the future plan for them to use this knowledge going forward? Yeah, the next step is um, we will try and break down some product that they can actually grow in the farm. So Hopevale and Napernum actually have a farm. So we can go, you can take that product, grow it there, and then we want to bring them back into the food incubator and they actually make their own product out of what they've grown and brand that and see if that's a product they could sell. Um, and that could, you know, create a new income stream for the community. And we're really trying to break down the barriers to show there's lots of support from state and local government and federal government to really make it easy and it's about not um, communities to go and invest in putting a huge plantation in and how they can actually do it really small scale and test and iterate and come up with a recipe or and grow um, you know a product and value add it and and test and do multiple or one product so it's about taking small steps to build capability confidence and a product. How big do you expect the Indigenous food industry to get over the next few years? Uh, there's a lot of prediction that it can grow into like a, a $20 billion industry with by 2035, and we're really at small scale right now of around $100 million. So there's a huge opportunity, and there's a real demand for a fully owned Indigenous supply chain of produced and owned and value-added and sold. Uh, there's retailers around the country that are screaming for this, people around the world. So we're encouraging them to actually look at what other higher-value products they could put in, and also also stuff that connects to their culture. So I think it re really um, provides a driver and an internal motivator to go and produce stuff that their grandparents and, and elders have produced and consumed because the food is really high in vitamins and minerals that is actually healthy for everyone. So it's such a, a good opportunity. But what's important when we look at lemon myrtle and macadamia, which are indigenous native foods, they're already gone overseas and are currently no indigenous or traditional owners are benefiting from any of that. So what's really important is how do we get them involved early, uh, get them to lock up some of the IP and production and actually um, get the benefit out of what the world is seeking and is highly nutritious food. Hi, my name is Kaylin Jackson. I'm um, part of the Stolen Generation, but I'm from Yarrabah. I found it quite interesting. The Davidson Plum, we used to just eat it like that, you know? Get it and just eat it, put, put sugar on it and eat it. But eating it in the jam was really nice. Did you ever know that they could be a valuable way to make a business? 
No, I didn't until I came in here and found out that, yeah, there's something that we could be doing because we have it in our own backyard, you know, and if we can market from it, it'd be good for us and our grandchildren, you know, to give them something, pass on our, um, our experience, you know, and our knowledge. I'd love to take something back and I'd love to see something like this grow in Yarraba and we have something that we can call ours, yeah. Kaylin Jackson from Yarrabah finishing that report by Tanya Murphy. Nation-building, game-changing, revolutionary. There's an enormous list of benefits that stem from the $14 billion inland rail project. Double-stacked trains moving between Melbourne and Brisbane, getting goods to port and taking big trucks off the road. As you travel the 1,700-kilometre proposed route, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who doesn't want the project to go ahead. But as Nathan Morris discovered, you will meet plenty of people who hold grave concerns about how it's being rolled out. Australia's population is predicted to be more than 50 million by the end of the century. And on the east coast, freight demand is forecast to double by 2050. To meet that demand, the inland rail will be needed to transport essential items like food, white goods, timber and steel. But decades after the first official route was examined in 2006, Construction only began after the Barnaby Joyce-led Nationals secured an $8.4 billion funding commitment in a coalition agreement. However, since construction began, the rollout of the project has faced challenges along the line. Around Canamble in western New South Wales, flooding is just one of the persisting concerns about the inland rail, with the relationship between some farmers and the government-owned Australian Rail Track Corporation, or ARTC, becoming particularly strained. ARTC, who have been chartered to build this rail line, um, it's been an amateur hour and unprofessional from the outset. Adrian Lyons farms near Canamble, and he's also part of the New South Wales Farmers Association and chair of the Inland Rail Task Force. The problem with Inland Rail is they've tried to build for budget, not specification. We have hydrology issues. You'll see in this area here today that we have a watershed that has no data capture because we're not an irrigation uh, farming region. Interim ARTC Chief Executive Rebecca Pickering said flood risk was being seriously considered. So I think we're trying to listen to the community and those data points and feedback and build them into our, our models. Um, we've certainly improved in that process of consultation over the course uh, of the years we've been working on this. And I'm confident that what we have now are robust models and the independent reviewers are confirming that. ARTC has tried to take concerned landholders through its flood models to reassure them. Our designers have worked hard to make sure that we've got enough bridge structures, culverts that allow water to pass through that ensure that that flood water is not exacerbated. The 1700 kilometre inland rail will have to cross a number of flood prone watercourses. But the ARTC's Rebecca Pickering said the railway will actually help during big rain events. Yeah, I think over recent years we've seen um, some extreme weather events and, you know, we've seen that cause um, a reasonable amount of you know, chaos to some of our transport networks. Uh, and what Inland Rail provides is a real boost to the resilience of our supply chain uh, network. So by having alternate train lines that traverse north-south, um, you know, we can make sure that if there are impacts to other routes, uh, we can still get goods um, to market. So this is really bolstering the resilience of our entire um, supply chain. The problem, though, for farmers near Mill Mirren in southern Queensland 
is that to make the railway floodproof, they say ARTC plans to build a large embankment across the floodplain they live and work on. Our issue is, of course, um, the new railway line, the inland rail that's to be built here, is going to be three and a half metres high at this point. So it's going to be a wall, an embankment. So the water is going to be no longer able to flow over the top of it. And so um, they're going to have culverts to let the water through. As soon as we have culverts, we have water speed up and erode this soil. The Condamine River flats where Bud Kelly farms have flooded six times since December 2021. We, we originally t- asked them to build it at the same height as this rail and no, no, they wanted to build it higher for better flood risk or whatever. Um, and then we said, well, make it a bridge the whole way and they don't want to do that either. I guess it's cost. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yep. In the nearby village of Pampas, Bronte Harris's house stands less than 100 metres from the railway line. She has a photo of a flood in 2010, which shows water lapping at her top step. Um, ARTC modelling basically said there was no water this area. 49 centimetres is a discrepancy in that height and their modelling. Well, we just, it's just rule of thumb. If there's one error, there's two. So where else are their measurements out? But an ARTC spokesperson said it has since factored in Bronte Harris's observed flood heights into its latest modelling, along with more than 50 other historical flood markers and more than 400 photos and videos provided by other landholders. And there have been um, a significant number of independent reviews of that modelling work to verify it's been done to world's uh, best practice Um, and there's even been an international panel of experts appointed uh, to review our models uh, and they have um, been complimentary of the work done so far and we've been given some recommendations to carry forward into further stages of our design. However, in a draft report released earlier this year, that same independent panel of flood experts also found some floodplain catchments had been left out of modelling, and so too had soil assessments. But it also made clear that it was normal for issues like this to be identified during project development, and the current problems could be resolved. The final report has been delivered, and is being considered by both the Queensland and federal governments. making sure that Australia exists away from Sydney, Brisbane and Melbourne. When it comes to the politics surrounding the inland rail, former National Party leader and Minister for Infrastructure Barnaby Joyce has been front and centre for years. It was through the coalition agreement in 2016 with the Malcolm Turnbull-led Liberal Party that Mr Joyce secured the first major funding of $8.4 billion for the project. Now, Mr Turnbull wanted Western Sydney Airport while well, I wanted the inland rail. And now we've got the money, we don't want to lose the money, we want to build it, they've started on it, let's get the thing done. Since then, the Australian government has invested up to $14.5 billion in the inland rail. And we want to make sure it's delivered, not so much for the National Party or for me or for anybody else, but for the people who live along the line. But late last year, a Senate inquiry into the inland rail tabled its report, titled Derailed from the Start. The report raised concerns about transparency, questioned the business case and the ever-increasing cost, which it said could blow out to over $20 billion. Uh, Nothing is a perfect outcome. And people who, if, if you're going to make the perfect enemy of the good, then you won't have a railway line. However, the Senate report findings were consistent with the observations of Cameron Simpkins, a former project director at the Australian Rail Track Corporation, the company building the project. Got the documentation. It was very clear that 
it had been done in a rush. Rushed? It should have happened like 1950. If I followed the not rushed process, we wouldn't be building it at all. Cameron Simpkin says when he arrived, many at the ARTC were surprised that they'd secured the project. It certainly appeared like you know, two guys at the Commodore listening to KC and the Sunshine Band, you know, roaring up the road beside the railway going, yeah, it's OK, it's OK, it's OK, it's OK. Let's move on. I think most of it was done desktop, to be perfectly honest. I, I think they just looked on Google Maps and went, no problems here, keep going. At one point, he says an independent engineer was brought in to assess the plans for the project. All the culverts have been stripped out to remove the cost. All the level crossings have been stripped out to remove the fencing. Um, the kilometres and kilometres of fencing hadn't been included. And none of that had been included in that initial cost. But was any infrastructure like culverts, fencing, like fundamental stuff like bridges ever stripped out of the project to keep costs down, as far as you're aware? Um, I think that everything was sort of investigated for efficiency, but I, I don't believe that was, that was stripped down. I think uh, in any sort of quantity, you know, quantity surveyor process, you, know, you, you look for value for money. Roughly 300 kilometres of track has been built since 2017, and all but 5.3 kilometres of that is upgrades to existing railway lines. According to the ARTC, about $2 billion has been spent so far. Catherine King is the Federal Minister for Infrastructure and Transport. A lot more has been spent on this project than was originally budgeted for, uh, and it is well over original budget and well over time. I think the previous government uh, was trying to have us believe that it would be open and finished by 2026-27. It is clear that that is absolutely not going to be the case. There is a broad acceptance that an inland rail will be needed to meet East Coast freight demands which are forecast to double in the next 20 to 30 years. Barnaby Joyce again. Uh, getting this thing built is of primary importance. I, I know how governments can work. I can take you to even dam sites where they put in the footings but they never built the dam because the things delay kills it. There are two pending reviews of the ARTC's flood modelling yet to be made public, and the now Labor government promised a review of the project before its election earlier this year. Minister Catherine King says she's finalising the terms of reference for that independent review. It will be a short, sharp review. Really what I'm looking to do is get a real handle uh, on where are all of the problems along the route and where is a pathway to actually resolve some of these problems. And, you know, we may not be able to fix everything, but there's certainly, uh, as we saw through the Senate inquiry process, there are still some significant community concerns. Nathan Morris and myself reported that story for the ABC's Landline Show. We've got two TV stories and two online stories that I'll link to at the Country Breakfast homepage. My thanks to Kath Sullivan, Kath McAloon and Brendan O'Neill for bringing the show together this week. Saturday morning superstars are up next, so keep it locked to ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.